Hello and welcome to the Occupy French Starbucks edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. As ever, Anna Shemansky is here. Hello. And Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. And we have a, f- a bona fide Frenchman. We have a man who is French from his well-coiffed hair to his very toes, Mr. Rob Cox of Breaking Views. Bonjour. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Cox is not actually French, Mm-mm. but you live in Paris now. I do. And you are going to tell us all about what's been going on with the yellow vests first. You insist on calling them, because you're now French, they're gilets jaunes. <laughs> um, you are going to help us understand what has been going on with Tesla this week, Um and why they have suddenly seem, seemingly cared much more about cost-cutting of late than growth. Um, we are going to talk about Facebook and their moderation and how well it's going. Spoiler alert, not very. Um, and we're going to talk a bit about, um, a bit more, I should say, about 3G, which is this, you know, international quasi-Brazilian company which bought Kraft Heinz and wound up not doing very well with it. And it's going to be like a super gnarly, interesting, awesome episode of Slate Money. So all of that, plus, if you're a Slate Plus member, existentialism from Emily Peck about, you know, she, she's coming over all Jean-Paul Sartre. You have no idea. This is going to be a good one. So stay tuned. This is all coming up on Slate Money. So the big news of this week or one of the big news, as teased by Elon Musk on his Twitter account in a tweet that may or may not have violated the agreement with the SEC, was that he is going to actually sell the Model 3 for $35,000, which he kept on saying he was going to do and then never did. It was always much, much more expensive. Like when he started selling it, it was over $70,000. And everyone was like, this is the, you know, entry-level car. But now he says you can actually buy a Model 3 for $35,000, although if you want all of his sexy new software doing, like, self drive things, it costs, like, $8,000 more. Like, if you want wheels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you want the car to yeah. come find you in a parking lot. <laughs> if you want the... Which if you terrifying. Want, which, if you want the, it to be, like, kit in night drive away you're like car come rescue me then that costs extra but i mean i love that we're living in the future and that's actually like an optional extra on a $35,000 car i mean that's kind of awesome so and in any case he is in cost cutting mode weirdly he's closing down all of his stores he is um making it so that you can only buy Teslas online. Seems great to me. We were just talking about this before you walked in. Buying cars online seems fine because buying cars at the dealership is the worst. Well, I think buying cars at most dealerships is the worst, but buying cars at a Tesla dealership has not been the worst because they aren't working on commission and they don't have that, you know, intermediate. They're they're not middlemen who are not owned by the company. It's a showroom more than it is anything right. else. You yeah. go in, you choose the color, you kind of steering wheel, all that kind of stuff. And But there's nobody there going, come on, I'm, you know, and sort of taking your kid, giving him a, a lollipop and saying, come on, oh my God. Your dad, you're, you're, you really want your dad to buy this car. They don't do that. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, a lot of it, you know, in a sense, he's got he's in a race for time, right? He's He has got dwindling cash. 
So well, he, he just well. so, so he just like, used literally all of his- <laughs> on yeah. Friday he spent nine hundred and twenty million dollars to pay off a five year bond that he borrowed in twenty fourteen. Um, there was thought. Uh, not just a few months ago, that he might only have to pay $460 million and the rest he could pay with stock. But it turns out that the yeah, stock was, isn't high enough, so he's, he's it was a convertible off the whole bond. thing. I don't think that's so bad, but you're saying, Rob, that he's running out of cash and that he's got this kind of cash problem. Well, uh, he doesn't want to go out and raise or may may find a struggle to raise additional equity capital. So you might as well do what you can to sort of, you know, jettison anything that's hold, you know, that's that's pulling him down. So it may be the cost of the rental costs, all that kind of stuff with uh, all the stores around the world. It, it, there'll be other things, I'm sure. There'll be lots of perks or maybe people, all that kind of stuff. He's in a race to get to, to sell as many of these these cars at thirty five thousand, which, by the way, have limited, um, you know, drive. I think they they go up to 100, 220, 220 miles, which miles, yeah. which a lot of people tell me is not really long enough. It's I mean, people who, who buy these things use these cars, and 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 you've got to get. He wants to do this as fast as he can while hoping that battery prices, which I think is probably the most expensive component in the car, come down. Right. So, so I I want to just pick up a little bit on what you're saying there about. Um, how he might find it difficult to raise equity. I don't think he would find it difficult to raise equity. I think he would find it easy to raise equity. And I think that if he did raise equity, the stock price would actually go up rather than down. I feel like he has this um, weird sort of aversion to he's he's he used to be like a blitz scaler. He used to be part of the PayPal mafia, like Reed Hoffman and Peter Thiel and people like that who he co-founded PayPal with, who are just like spend as much as it takes, as quickly as it takes to grow as fast as possible. And now he's switched from that and he's not raising any more equity for reasons which I don't entirely understand. Well, it'll cost him. It'll be extremely yeah, expensive. That's why the convertible exactly. bond was is not in the money. So, you know, it, raising equity now means he'd dilute himself, he'd dilute his shareholders. I don't know whether the stock would go up or not. It, it is sort of like this binary bet on... There's been all those years of building up, spend, 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 anything you can to prove the concept, get it going. Now it's about actually making profits, like actually making this model work. And so it is, it's very binary. And that's reflected in the stock price being, you know, way below 420. Yeah, and part of the, yeah. <laughs> Among yes. other numbers. But, but in any yeah, case, what at, he has yeah. done, but to, to tie this into the bigger picture, what he has done is he has made this extreme pivot from growth stage to like cost cutting. And he is really taking a, a page out of the 3G playbook, you know, the, the Kraft Heinz playbook of saying, like, I want to run this company as lean as possible. If I'm going to be able to sell a car for $35,000 and make money on it, I need to cost cuts, abs- cut costs absolutely everywhere. And I, haven't we just learned from Kraft Heinz that this is not a move that works? Okay, I think there is a, a bit of a difference between zero base budgeting and Tesla. <laughs> okay, what's because, the difference? So zero, well, per, first of all, like if you're looking at the 3G model, if you're looking at zero base budgeting, you're talking about every year starting out from zero and then you have to justify every single expense and every department Isn't has capped expenses. Isn't that what Elon has basically said he, that he's doing? What he is doing is trying to scale back from just wasting cash and throwing cash at every, like there is a huge difference between what we saw at Kraft and what Elon Musk is talking about. I think about. it's yeah, I what think... you do with the costs, in a sense, is the question. So, I mean, what he's, 
you cost cutting is fine. There's nothing wrong with cutting costs. Like they, you should make your company as efficiently as possible. It's what you do with the with what comes down falls to the the bottom line. Do you reinvest it to make the company stronger? Do you reinvest it in the cars? So and in the, essentially, what he's doing is making the cars cheaper. So and the, the big, reason, and so, also, wait, just, so the big difference to answer my own question between three G and Tesla is that are big, big. Is that he's not dividending he's not rent seeking. anything he's not he's not paying any he's not no. doing any buybacks he's not doing any dividends insofar as he's saving money he's reinvesting that money back hey, into the well, company the, yeah the but i mean i think G, it's yeah. yeah i think when you're talking about a company like the 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 3G model the belief was that you took over big legacy brands that the idea was well these don't actually need any advertising these don't really need you know in-store discounts so we can cut these costs. It'll still generate the same revenue. And th- those costs, the costs that we're saving, we can then reinvest that into research so that we can develop new pro- products and grow revenues. That was the original idea. The problem with that, of course, is that these revenue brands turned out not to have the same value. And the question is, is Tesla enough of a brand? Does it have enough value that you could cost cut costs substantially and it would still be able to generate th- a lot of revenue? I thought, though, rather than reinvest that money... What they were doing with 3G and maybe restaurant brands and Anheuser-Busch, this sort of 3G model was actually to to dividend out as much of that cash uh, to the owners uh, as possible, which and is they, a, which is yeah. rather than than no, I mean, the, the but the, that's I mean, the whole idea of ultimately the more the long term strategy is that when you make this company so efficient and it's doing so well that that will generate the revenue that will create the sales growth. But I don't think that was what happened in practice at craft <laughs> definitely because, not i mean they they first they overestimated the brand value um considering consumer tastes were changing and when they cut costs and that was very successful they didn't reinvest in innovation i mean there was this one pathetic article and the, the article wasn't pathetic but um their big breakthrough at at budweiser for example coming late in the game after you know everyone's switching away from from beer especially that kind of beer their big innovation was bud orange like that's just not innovation i think the difference also between like crafts 3g and a company like tesla's and they're just totally in different stages craft is sort of like they had to innovate like mad because of the the changing the changing landscape whereas tesla's kind of like ahead of the changing landscape they're an electric car company but the question but anna's question about with features that are of the future is is germane here because elon said on his announcement call that he basically has so much name recognition and so much brand value at this point that he doesn't need the stores in shopping malls anymore because everyone already knows about Tesla. Everyone already wants a Tesla. He's like, he's like, I can now coast on the brand value I've already got. I don't know. I don't need to invest in bringing it to people. I don't need to do like sales and marketing anymore. The, the cars will sell themselves. So the SG&A gets and, cut. And I feel that that was, what's SG&A? Sales, sales, general, general expensive, yeah. administrative expense. And, and like, I feel like that move of like my brand is amazing and it sells itself is exactly the same move that that 3G made with Kraft. I mean, everyone knows Belvita. Mm. You never need to. Yeah, but I think, <laughs> but I think in in the difference is with they were wrong about Kraft. Like one Do mac and cheese, right isn't, there's no Tesla? pricing power to like the middle of the supermarket, but there is power in. Like we were just talking about Elon Musk's his name and the Tesla brand. Like people were like waiting to buy these cars. They're very excited I, about I, the cars. 
Emily, I, I do think you're right in that there is a difference here in that part of the problem with the model that they had in relation to craft was that customer what what customers wanted was changing. They didn't necessarily right. want these old legacy brands, whereas Tesla is not a legacy brand. Exactly. It is decidedly a new brand of where taste potentially could be changing. However, I do question whether you can really see something still at these price points that is going to be able to long term be cash flow positive if you're not doing much outreach at all to customers. And you guys were saying this before, like maybe Tesla is just like a bespoke car company and the best bet they've 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 scaled as much as they can. They've grown as much as they as they could. And now maybe the best thing is like someone should maybe buy them. This is the key. um, the, The thing which I always come back to in my head is Elon Musk's compensation package where he doesn't earn any kind of salary from tesla um and instead he has uh, options on 20 million shares um which only kick in when he reaches a market cap of um like first 100 billion and then going all the way up to like 600 billion and and he the the whole way that this compensation package is structured is to give him every incentive to do things like grow as fast as he can and to become really big and not be bespoke but maybe and not reach raise, everyone. Maybe that's you've answered your question about why he doesn't want to raise exactly. equity capital. If it, and therefore, no, if you, no, like if you want to maximize market cap, then issuing new shares is great. Well, it depends on the on the contract. We don't know what the I have no right. idea what provisions there are there, but there's probably something that says that you can't just issue a bunch of shares and <laughs> forever to get to the of course, market. You know, yeah. I'm sure there's some it's restriction works, on yeah. that. But um it also means he might not be willing to sell. It actually could create a bunch of perverse incentives. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. But I, I yeah, I think that's I think he's really he he has like stuck in his head. This idea that once he's reached Model 3, he should be able to grow just from internal cash flow and he should never need to, you know, borrow or, or, or issue new stock ever again. Um, and I think probably most high-growth companies, and he is a high-growth company, um, you know, would not do that and would be happy. Like, the the stock market is desperate, desperate to find high-growth, money-losing companies that it can invest in. Like, these companies are very common in the private markets. They're almost non-existent in the public markets. They're very rare. And when you can find them, the stock prices are generally, you know, go through the roof. It strikes me that that's what Elon should want to be. No, I mean, he's. this is also the difference between Tesla and a lot of other you know tech companies that we talk about is Tesla. This is a very capital intensive industry. This is a very it's very expensive mm. to produce the product. There are also a lot of legacy competitors that are increasingly moving into this space. I do think that he is in a just much different place than if you're talking about you know just the the kind of the next start of the next unicorn, the Lyft or whoever. Yes. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day, and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. 
Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisitions like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. So, Rob. Yeah. You now live where? Uh, in the ninth arrondissement of Paris. Uh, do you wear a beret and smoke cigarettes? Uh, I do not wear a beret. Uh, I, I would <laughs> do you look, smell of garlic? Uh, do you no, ride a bicycle? No, I do sometimes. I can't. I have <laughs> been. I have been seen with a baguette. That is true. Walking uh, my half French dog uh, around uh, the streets of the Ninth Road. What's a half French dog? He's half poodle, and the he's half Scottish. French. Yeah. He's yeah. A, yeah. So he so he speaks French better than I do. <laughs> um. Where, oh, where are we going? Oh, yes. <laughs> we were. <laughs> um, we just went to France. We just went to France. No, we're just setting the scene here. Are there Teslas in Paris? Are they common? You don't see them so much. Um, there are electric cars. There's a lot of the, the sort of Renault versions of them. And you, know, you see the charging stations all over the place. They're not Teslas, but there's, you know, there's definitely, uh, and there are a lot of incentives to have those kinds of cars in France. And actually throughout, you, if you go to uh, the Netherlands, you'll see the taxis are actually Teslas. And... So tell us, tell us a little bit like why you moved to France and what you found when you got there. Uh, well, uh, you know, it's a good time zone when you have to think about, you know, the global news cycle, Asia, Europe, United States. It's kind of perfect for what I do. Um, it's also a place I'd never lived before. I also was sort of getting to the point where I needed to get out of the noise a bit here in the States. And the other alternative would be, of course, your native uh, land of the United Kingdom, but which also obvious seems reasons to be, you might it, not want to live there, right? It's it, so we're you know you can't get, you can't get away from the noise about Brexit there. In some, it's similar to here where it's very difficult to get out of the whole Trump dyna, dynamo. So, in terms of like if if Trump and Brexit are a hundred and they just dominate the entire conversation and drown out everything else, um, what? Where does politics lie in, in, in France? All of this noise around the yellow vests and Macron's unpopularity and stuff like on a scale of one to Brexit, where would that land? Well, it, remember, I my French isn't very good. So I see people talking about it nonstop. It's on the radio. And I say, ah, I'm blissfully unaware. I, I know they just said Macron and gilets jaunes and I get the words and I'm certainly getting better. But it's it doesn't uh, overwhelm me in quite the same way, simply because I don't speak the language. But it is it as soon as I got there. This is the irony. So you try to leave the United States, avoid the UK um, and you get to France, as I did in the early December, literally landed on the December 8th. I think it was the biggest uh, expression of manifestation of the gilets jaunes in the country with uh, tens and tens of thousands of. Um, it's a little bit like Trump's inauguration on the numbers. <laughs> if you ask the French police, they say one thing. If you ask the gilets jaunes, they give you another. But it was, you know, it, so as soon as I got there, it was maybe um, kind of like the same thing, except it's different. It's a French expression. So there's, you know, there's people on the streets um, uh, lighting citrons on fire um, <laughs> and smashing sock gen ATMs and things like that. So what, so it has really morphed into something which, 
it's hard to pin down what exactly this yellow vest movement wants. And without going into the whole history of it, where are we now? Have the, is there like a group of like coherent demands actually emerged from this movement? Yet? No, no. As you say, it started as a sort of protest against taxes, which were meant to sort of, you know, uh, charge people for their use of carbon, right? you know, get diesel right. taxes, gas taxes. And, that, and that's where the limit. yellow vest came from. That's right? how it the, came is from. The, it was a vest which all French people have to have, you have, to have in, it in, their your, car. in your boot. And then you bring and they brought it and it started from the countryside, if you will, where most people still have to use their cars. In Paris, of course, everyone uses the metro or rides their bike with their baguette. And um, <laughs> so so but it's it's it is completely metastasized into this general like, let's bring on the Sixth Republic um, uh, revolutionary uh, sense. Well, this is what I find very interesting about France just in general, is that on the one hand, there is like this kind of cliche about France that they're always going to the barricades. (laughs) Like that's the common thing. But then on the other hand, it seems like a deeply, deeply conservative movement in a lot of ways. And and I feel like, and I I say that in the small c conservative, in, in which I mean that like, it's about not wanting to liberalize the labor market. It's about not wanting to kind of alter the kind of post-war French society. It's about not wanting, I think, often to allow non-white people into France. It's it's in a lot of ways, you know, it's wanting subsidies for many of these different French industries. It's about not wanting competition to come in. It's, I mean, it's all of that depending on who you talk to. This is the thing about, to, you know, to your question, Felix, I mean, there is, it's not really clear what, what you're, in fact, I interviewed a Gilet Jean guy who lives in Paris, um, who is one of their propagandists. He does all like the Facebook, you know, videos and things like that when they occupied a Starbucks, for instance. Um, and, and they all look really jolly there and i think a lot of them were ordering you know their their four <laughs> euro lattes <laughs> right you know per two and 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 then the um you know but but so you ask him he doesn't care about the gas tax he just thinks we need to get rid of um this this sort of the rich and the elite macron represents that i mean macron is you know he is a product of that you know the the the, the elite schooling in france which you know it's not like harvard I mean, there are like 60 people a year that go to these right. these universities, these schools. I mean, they're extraordinarily elite, and they're they're very often from privileged backgrounds. I think it's like 80 percent or 70 percent of them are. Um, so, so it's there's a there's a sort of rise up against elite, and this is what kind of actually links it with what we've seen in the United, the populism of the United States or in the UK or in Italy. In fact, you know, in in many respects, what's happened with in Italy with the um, the League and the Five Star mm-hmm. Movement is. That government in Italy right now basically looks like the gilet jaune in power. It's not. It, it, it's. It's. It, you know, on the one hand, it wants to kick out immigrants. On the other hand, it's very liberal and that universal it wants basic to, income. <laughs> universal basic income. I mean, it's really. It's kind of so. It's hard so that's, to pin so down. that's really interesting. Like, if the gilet jaune, insofar as they have a kind of vision of what they want, it's not dissimilar to the Italian government. So let's ask you that like how's the italian government doing well um you know there you know there's a spat between the french and the italians which is quite interesting uh the french pulled their ambassador i mean so uh salvini and di maio who the two the co-guys running italy even though it's conte is the is the prime minister um they're the deputy prime ministers have both insulted the french on numerous occasions they for instance okay i love them already well yeah i think i mean uh, maybe you guys talked about this where they went after the uh, french frank in yes, the, 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 the yes. african frank right yeah. and said this is you know keeping african 
Africans uh, poor. Um, you know, it, all, any number. Of the, so they they are really they are representing this sort of uh, anti elite. I mean, so but well, but it, domestically, is it working out for them? No, no, the economy is is actually not doing very well. And 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 I had the opportunity to interview. Uh, Conte, the, the prime minister, when he was in Davos, a place I know you you guys have. Uh, We're down. I'm down, down on Davos. We're down. But yeah. um, <laughs> you know, he and we said you know, his argument was: Look, you can't right now. All of this is the previous government. Previous government. These are you have to wait to see our universal. They don't call it universal, but it's like a cittadinanza, the reddito, whatever it is. This idea of a basic income, all of that kicks in in the spring. He's saying, just wait till the spring. Everything's going to be wait, great, and I'm the sorry. economy's going to grow. Italy's going to do universal basic income yeah. starting in the spring. Uh, yeah. oh, how how much is it going With to be? The money they don't have. Yes, it's like less than a thousand euros a month. I think okay. maybe it's eight hundred. And it, and I think there are like four million Italians that may qualify for it. Uh, so it's not entirely universal. So universal isn't. Yeah, it's not universal. <laughs> universal. It's basically a basic income that's not quite universal. And uh, and and they say once this kicks in, everything's going to be hunky dory. Of course, by then we may have. Uh, it's Italy, so come on, there'll be another government, right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> And, but so, in terms of popularity, have they retained some of the popularity that swat, that that you know brought them into power? Yes, unlike Macron. So Macron, you know, won the election. He's well, yeah, he was super popular when he was well, elected. Well, ish. I mean, you remember that they went to a, the in France. You go to the second round if you don't get a majority in the first round. So in the second round, it was him against Marine Le Pen. So who is you know viewed as a sort of quasi-fascist ultra-right. Most people sensibly said, no, I'm not. So it wasn't like an overwhelming mandate really for Macron. It was just like. Although he did then well, in, overwhelmingly win in the parliamentary elections yes. as well. En Marche so. crushed it in the elections, in the parliamentary elections. Now, if you look at Macron's approval rating is somewhere like 20 to 30 percent, depending on, on, on the on the um, on the pollster. Um, in, in Italy, Salvini's league has actually risen quite a bit in the in, over the year plus that they've had. Well, year that they've since the election. So so five star is actually lost a bit, even though they were a majority. They were, sorry, the largest party in the elections last March. Um, Now you have Salvini and the League up with, I don't know, something like 30%. That's not approval rating. That's, you know, that's if you had a a vote today, they would get that much in the parliament. This is why people are talking about the idea that they might, he might actually seek uh, elections after the European parliament is elections. the league still an explicitly regional party, no. or is, because like it was always the, the Northern League? Yeah, it right? was. It was Lega Nord. Now it's Lega. Okay. So they've branded nationally, <laughs> but but th- their support has has gone up uh, across in the south a bit. Um, but the five star movement is much more popular because they bring you things like the. Basic well, this income. is why it's not surprising. You have Macron coming in saying like we need to actually liberalize our labor laws. We need to reduce some benefits. We need to reduce some taxes, increase some taxes. And because we need growth, we need investment. And then you have Italy saying, I'm going to give you everything. It's not surprising that one of those is going to be more popular than the other. Yeah, exactly. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. 
Emily. Hi. Your favorite um, social media panopticon <laughs> um, is back in the news. It is. Tell us a little bit about the latest Facebook revelations. But you cannot escape Facebook, can you? Um, so this week there were two stories that were really interesting, probably more, but um, there was one by Casey Newton in The Verge that was a behind-the-scenes look at Facebook's moderators who work as contractors for a company called Cognizant. And it was, I mean, <laughs> it was pretty good. It was a great feature story. These workers are, they're forced to force. They, they must look at just really awful content all day long, beheadings, um, shootings, um, graphic sexual content, and they're really messed up. They're riddled with anxiety. Um, the ones Casey Newton spoke to, they're smoking pot outside so that they can like deal with their work. They're apparently having sex in the stairwells. Um, some of them, because they see so many um, conspiracy theory videos, according to his reporting, um, they believe in, in the conspiracy theories like... And all, I mean, the 9-11 ones, all the good ones, all the ones you're familiar with, some of them have just come to sort of believe them. Momo is the, is the conspiracy theory du jour. <laughs> like, ju just as a public service announcement, um, the, the latest conspiracy theory is called Momo, and it's some, like, evil, like, bird woman who's trying to get your kids to kill themselves on yes. YouTube. Oh. It's, by Jeff, in case your preschool teacher starts, like, oh. warning you about this, it's all fake. It doesn't exist. Pay no attention. Don't worry about it. Your kids can watch YouTube without wanting sounds to like commit a Japanese suicide. Horror movie. It, really it, 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 like awful. these things come around. This is one. Yeah. This one has been around for over a year. But it, the thing which has really struck me is the degree to which a bunch of like middle class mums have like really bought into it with zero evidence. But anyway, back to yeah. Facebook. Um, so back to Facebook. So the piece, you know, goes on about how these workers are in terrible conditions. They make $28,000 a year, whereas the average Facebook worker makes $240,000 a year. I mean, it's ridiculous. And then later this week, some Facebook full-time employees came out and said, like, why are we contracting out content moderation? These people should be full-time employees. So there's that piece. And then Vanity Fair had a more, um, had kind of like the flip side story of the people at the top in Facebook who are coming up with the content moderation rules. And um, I'm going to use a highly technical term for how it's going. I would call it a shitstorm, shit show. One of those. You can pick. We can pick. The, um, um, Angela Merkel's favorite word, by the way. <laughs> she uses it all the time. And the, and the way that um, the piece sort of lays it out, it's like, Facebook is regulating the speech of 2.3 billion people across multiple countries. And it's, you know, it's really, really hard. And and then the the, the sort of like downside, down ballot Stream. result of that. Anyway, the result of that in part are these moderators who are basically suffering from a host of issues working for this allegedly great company that's so great to work for. It's like all these tech companies have these sort of shadow workforces. You know, there was a story in um, Business Week recently about Apple contractors, you know, and they're always these contractors are always waiting in line to go to the bathroom in these stories. <laughs> it's a common thread. So the Apple contractors also they only have you know, 15-minute break, so they're all running to the bathroom at the same time, waiting online. Same with the Facebook workers. They're all running to their lockers to get their phones. I can, mean, can, they not, can they not, like, stagger the breaks? Seriously. I don't understand why they can't figure out the break situation, but it's definitely a problem. Or, like, make more bathrooms doesn't seem like a huge issue. I'm not saying raise their hourly wage, just toilets. <laughs> 
right? It's, it strikes me, as, you know, it's it's the twenty years ago we had this conversation about you know Nike or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they'd have these sweatshops in Bangladesh, and then you know the, the articles would be written, and we'd find out they were working in pretty hellish conditions. That, that you know, you, maybe you just don't expect this as part of the you know Facebook social network mm-hmm. information economy. That oh oh, there's also these really crummy, t- you know, terrible and kind of dangerous, at least to mental health. At least that, that's the way that the article portrayed it. The only thing I would say is, and I'm not like trying to defend this, but I'm just saying that I feel like this article was a very salacious article Mm. that Mm -hmm. was written to make a certain point. It spoke with 12 people. Now, if when they actually showed where the people were working, I wouldn't necessarily call those hellish conditions. Mm -hmm. And also the idea that they're constantly just looking at very, very violent content, that doesn't necessarily seem to be true. Now, having said that, even if you have to look at one beheading, that's that's a lot. So I'm I'm not saying I'm not saying that there's no problem here. Mm-hmm. Also, the you know the median per capita income in Arizona is twenty nine thousand dollars. So I'm not saying they couldn't pay them a little more. But comparing them to workers in Facebook, those completely different jobs, completely different areas. So I'm not sure if that plus, makes plus they get to have sex in the stairwell. Well, <laughs> and that was the other thing. It was like you're like it just seemed to me like they were talking to someone who brought a gun to work and thought that was a good idea. So. I'm not saying that we don't potentially have issues here. And in Facebook has also like been pretty like has said explicitly like they realize that this is a very difficult job and it's very hard to do what is they're trying to do. And honestly, I think it's probably impossible. So this, I mean, AI, I think this but- is this is the, the the key takeaway from all of this is that like Facebook has not worked out how to do this key part of its job at a high level. Mm-hmm. It has not exactly. worked out how to do this key part of its job at a low level. And I mean, for those of us in the press who have to deal with, you know, the Facebook public relations team, I can guarantee you they have not worked out how to do this key part of their job at the middle level either. Um, They haven't, like, it's very hard, actually, to work out um, where Facebook is doing anything right, except for selling ads. It's extremely good at selling ads. And, you know, we should talk about the recent Wall Street Journal article which was saying that like a whole bunch of apps on your phone even if you have never signed up for facebook in your entire life even if you have no connection with facebook you can download you know period tracker apps and they will report back to facebook when you get pregnant so that you you know facebook can then serve you ads when you're just surfing the internet you know you don't need to have a facebook account for Facebook to know who you are and to start selling you, you know, baby strollers or whatever. It's yeah. crazy. Well, I mean, that was a sign of the once again, Facebook really is sort of floundering to regulate itself and it's sort of scaled too much and doesn't it, it's just this octopus out of control. But also a sign, again, that the the, the workforce, the tech workforce is so bifurcated. And, um, you know, there was a, a quote and I think it was in like a Bloomberg write up of the Casey Newton piece Um where someone from Facebook said, like, you know, we're not going to be like Kodak. You know, we're not going to take janitors and make them go to the C-suite or anything. Like, that's not how it works. Because if you do it like Kodak, you have to do a lot of layoffs, which I thought was kind of like, come on, you guys are supposed to be smart. Figure wait, 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 wait. Hang on. So the idea that <laughs> Ursula Burns could start off, like, as a janitor, basically, and then become CEO, mm-hmm. um, that's like, that's a bad thing. Why? It's a fantasy, and if and if you treat your, I mean, the way I read it was like if you treat your janitors really well like that, you'll just wind up laying them off anyway. So, 
this is how we're doing I guess, it. I guess my <laughs> takeaway from the whole thing is, to be honest, I didn't realize the degree to which they outsourced such an important part of the of their problem, right? So if you look at it, the, this is the thing that is going to either make or break Facebook, whether they allow this kind of content, whether they're allowed to be manipulated and all that kind of stuff. That seems to be really important. So it's completely contracting outward you know, to some, what is it called, cognizant. Cognizant. This, this in, incredibly you know, existential part of their of their of their business that just that just alone and then the fact that yeah okay it's probably i mean if any of us were writing that we definitely talked to the guy with the gun and like <laughs> got the story about sex and the stairwells into it let's face it that does make the story but but the fact is these are re- apparently real people who are who are taking on this incredibly important function um at really arm's length from the company. That was the other thing, you know, you show these differences of, you know, and it was well done and said like, this person's paid a dollar more for supervising the person who's on the thing. And then the person who's brought in to be an expert on a subject gets a dollar more an hour. You realize that actually, I'm not sure to your point, I guess, Emily, is have they really taken on board how serious the problem is? Yeah, these are they're they're sort of treated like blue blue collar jobs, but they're not. They're white collar jobs. They're they're using discretion and judgment, even though Facebook is desperately trying mm. to make very specific rules. Like it, it's never going to work. And, and, and one issue. of the key, I, yeah, one of the key things from the um, Vanity Fair piece is that this is not something which you can do by creating like hard and fast rules. Like the hard and fast rules are always going to create like edge cases and you need a bunch of like discretion and common sense otherwise you wind up you know preventing comedians from saying men are scum right right we had casey newton on if then this week Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the things that he said that i thought was really interesting was aside from obviously the cheaper labor aspect of it he thinks part of the reason Facebook doesn't want to deal with this is that they really just want this to be done by machines uh, yeah, yeah. as quickly I think that's, as possible. I think that's exactly right, because I think what they're doing is they're saying, like, we're going to get a cheap labor force that's going to create a lot of data. We're going to feed that to our AIs, be create better algorithms. We don't care if the workers just kind of they're revolving door. I actually think that's probably correct. And they did say in the Vanity Fair piece that they've gotten way better at at least naked pictures and one other kind of bad content. Um, their AI has gotten a lot better at getting rid of it. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a numbers round. Emily's got a number. I can tell she's excited. It's two. Oh, that's a good number. It's the number of companies that Gap is splitting into. Ah, the Gap story. <laughs> the Gap is splitting up, you guys. Oh, my God. It, um, it's, it's splitting into a it, – it's a bit like a good bank and a bad bank. Yeah, Old where, Navy. Where, where the bad bank is the Gap. And <laughs> <laughs> yes. Old Navy is – becoming its own thing. It's going to be run by um, Sonia Singal, who be who raised the number of female CEOs in the Fortune 500 to a whopping 28. Yay! Um, and then all the rest of the companies will be in another um, another brand, which they haven't even named yet. They're just calling it Nuco. They like, can't figure it out, which <laughs> is really hilarious sad. to me. Um, My favorite, like the, whenever companies split up, they um, 
they always talk about like we're going to create this new co and they always call it new co until they you know pay some branding consultant a gazillion dollars to come up with an actual name and then john battelle who started federated media he's one of these like classic early internet he was at wired and that kind of stuff an early internet publisher his his company is actually called Nuco, <laughs> and I love the fact he's just like, yeah, I'm just going to call it like the wow. the placeholder name. Also, I didn't realize Old Navy was a such a juggernaut, eight yeah. billion dollars in sales, which is yep. the a, basically the equivalent of all the other brand sales, because it's really, really, really cheap. And that's the thing; it's low end and high end. Exactly. Everything in the middle, the middle is, is dying, yep. and as we see with all these other things, Facebook jobs, um, et cetera. Middle and, class. And, blah, and blah, blah. yeah, which which brings us back to the original question of can Tesla succeed as anything <laughs> other than a high end brand? Um, which we are not going to answer on this show. Uh, my number is $31 million, which is the new asking price for the Neverland Ranch, which has been on the market for basically ever since Michael Jackson died. Um, it was originally put on the market for $100 million, um, didn't sell, obviously. And the woman who listed it for $100 million and is now relisting it for $31 million gave this absolutely glorious quote saying that the reason why it didn't sell for $100 million is, wait for it, that people realize that $100 million isn't chump change. <laughs> <laughs> Surely there's some Saudi prince who <laughs> for this thing. And, and if does the does the the Wonder Wheel work or whatever it was on the Ferris wheel? No, the Ferris wheel's all gone. Oh. Yeah, they took out all of the the children's attractions in time for the HBO. I was going to say that's not going to help the brand value of Neverland. It's the really HBO not. <laughs> I think they actually changed the name as well. I think I think Smart. it's I think it's the the ranch formerly known as Neverland. <laughs> it's just a symbol. <laughs> the archdiocese could buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rob. We, we needed that. Thanks. Uh, what's your number? One hundred and forty-three million. Okay, that is the amount that Oprah Winfrey has taken out of Weight Watchers since she first bought in. She paid forty-three million dollars a few years ago for a stake. She's she's put some more money in and exercised a lot of options. Uh, she sold one hundred forty-three million, and she still owns a stake of one hundred million dollars. Pretty good, and she has options. I think on another forty million. So good so for her. yeah, not so bad. <laughs> she's now, so great. So well, the stock, <laughs> as you as you probably saw it, cratered earlier this week, um, but which got got us to look at it and. I couldn't believe it had gone up 15-fold since the time she had first invested in it. So I guess sometimes a personality attached to a brand isn't the worst thing. But I thought it, Weight Watchers isn't doing well. Like, it's real no, brand. It's, it's not even Weight Watchers. No, it's, it's WW. WW. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so what So what caused the run-up and what caused the cratering? Uh, I, well, I think the, the run-up, a lot of it was basically Oprah's star attraction. She's She's now got skin in the game, no pun intended, and she's she was put you know, was able to pitch it. And so a lot of her followers loved it. So that's why, that's obviously why it went up. Oprah, um, if you're listening, by Huffington Post. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know. I think, you know, th there's just, a, there's so many, uh, there's so many other ways to, to, to follow your weight and all that kind of stuff on the, there's so many apps that have come up, things like Noom, all these things that, that seems to be the assault that they're, that they're not quite prepared to face to battle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My number is $175,000. So if you want to have dinner with the Ethiopian prime minister, it will cost you $175,000. <laughs> I mean, do you get like 
caviar with that? I, I, we don't know. Separate? And that's actually the low end of what apparently they are pricing these um, per plate dinners. So basically, they want to raise a lot of infrastructure money for infrastructure spending, but they don't want to do it in traditional ways. So they are, I, I will say, I kind of respect the Collateralized fact that, dinner obligations? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He also, he apparently also like had a um, auction. He auctioned off his watch, that was also about two hundred thousand dollars. Now, granted, they're targeting a billion dollars, so they're gonna have to have a lot of these dinners. But um, I, I just thought it was interesting that it was so like kind of explicit about like you want to buy time with the prime minister, pony up the cash. I was like, well, you're being straightforward. And he's a newish guy. He is. He just and, was elected like last year, right? And, and there've been some good things with uh, opening up with Eritrea, releasing political prisoners. I mean, there's there's it's a complicated. Yeah. But I mean, it's a very poor country. Needs a lot of infrastructure. It's big. I mean, yes. what is it? Eighty million people yeah, or something like that. So you you know it's. I mean, people no. like this guy. The no, front, no, you know, it's I true. I mean, and I, so that's why I say so. One hundred seventy-five thousand dollars. Hey, it's not that bad. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, but so this is, I guess, an alternative to the base case thing, which is just take it all from China, right? Pretty much, yes. And yeah. so this is his way, like, please, please give me all of this money so that I don't need to become a vassal state of the Chinese. He's gonna do like a GoFundMe also. <laughs> Kickstarter. Yeah. So go to um, www.helpoutthethiopians.com, <laughs> but um, bid yourself $175,000 and you can have, and does it need to be in Ethiopia this dinner or will he come like anywhere in the world? No, I'm pretty sure you have to go there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a beautiful country. Apparently. Unbelievable. Um, so I think that's it. Thank you uh, very much. And coming up on Slate Plus, we have Emily talking about existentialism. Finding your purpose in your life, in your work, is an empty project that will leave you, in the end, feeling despair. I don't. Do, I very much disagree with that. I very much disagree with that. So listen to that if you're a Slate Plus member. Otherwise, thank you for listening to Slate Money. Thank you to Max Jacobs for producing. And thank you very much to Mr. Rob Cox for coming in. My pleasure. We will talk to you next week on Slate Money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.